Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. A few months ago, which, let's face it, might as well be 10 years ago, I went out on the road to promote my Mobituaries book. The names I was asked most about? Famous first brother Billy Carter, screen legend Audrey Hepburn, and the original Siamese twins Chang and Ang. I'm imagining a wacky road trip with the four of them. Now, if in some parallel universe they were to take a road trip, I would hope they'd take it in the vehicle that was once synonymous with family fun and adventure. Please enjoy this Mobit for The Station Wagon, which I recorded for the audiobook version of the Mobituaries book. And please enjoy the bonus on the back end of this bonus. Death of a Leviathan The Station Wagon 1949 to 2011. My family had a station wagon for a couple of years in the early 1970s, but I was only three or four at the time, so I can barely remember it. It was yellow, I think, or maybe it was cream-colored. Was it a Chevy? What I do know is that one afternoon, my mother put my brother in the back seat after a doctor's appointment, and the car started rolling backward in the parking lot. A la Angie Dickinson in Policewoman, my mother had to jump into the front seat and pull the emergency brake. This was reason enough for my father to trade in the station wagon for an Impala sedan soon after. And just like that, the one thing that made us like TV's Brady family, and who were more all-American than the Bradys, was gone. For a few decades, from the mid-50s to the mid-80s, station wagons like the Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser the Chrysler Town and Country, and the Ford Country Squire were as central to the American dream as the white picket fence and the basketball hoop in the driveway. These were the quintessential family cars. FYI, the Bradys had at least two different station wagons, both of them Plymouth satellites. And the bigger the wagon, the cooler the family. By the 1970s, the Ford Country Squire was a nearly 19-foot-long behemoth and got a whopping 8 to 10 miles to the gallon. You could cram four or five kids into the back seat, 
but that's not where I want it to be. Anytime I was lucky enough to ride in one, and I'm sure I befriended some kids because their families had station wagons, I headed straight for the way back, with the seats folded down. The freedom, the danger. I loved being thrown against the side when the car turned, all the better when other kids were back there, all of us ricocheting off each other after a pizza party at Shakey's. Riding in the way back gave me the same out-of-control thrill I got from roller coasters. Related thought, I used to fantasize about climbing into the dryer so I could just spin and spin. It's probably a good thing I didn't figure out how to turn the dryer on from the inside. What gave these cars an extra flair was the vinyl applique wood grain paneling. It made it feel like a house on wheels. The paneling was a throwback to the earliest station wagons, which were made mostly of wood. These wagons were DIY affairs. The customer would buy the chassis of, say, a Model T, then order the wood body from a coach builder or hire a carpenter to make it and bolt it on. It was just much lighter and easier to build the body out of wood, says my friend Matt Anderson, curator of transportation at the Henry Ford Museum. The technology just didn't exist at that time to build a large body out of steel. By the 1930s, these vehicles, and many were beauties, were known as woodies. The earliest station wagons were used on farms or as delivery vehicles and to transport passengers between railroad stations and hotels. That's how the vehicle got the name station wagon. This is the kind of factoid I love. By the time the baby boom hit, the station wagon had caught on with families. The first real modern station wagon is the 1949 Plymouth Suburban, says Matt. It's got an all-steel body. The name itself tells you how that vehicle was marketed. The rise of the suburbs was a big factor in the adoption of the station wagon. Now, it's true that station wagons were an absolute nightmare for any teenager learning to parallel park. They were larger than the standard parking space. The sight lines were miserable, and I'm pretty sure that rear defrosters hadn't been invented yet. And of course, they were dangerous. The way back was a death chamber. For the more safety conscious, there was a rear-facing fold-up seat introduced by Chrysler in 1957. It had seat belts, not that you could ever find them. It also had the benefit that someone sitting back there could call out whenever luggage strapped to the roof rack came free and tumbled out onto the highway. By the early 1980s, the family station wagon was already beginning to acquire value as kitsch. We know this for a fact, because in 1983, Warner Brothers released Harold Ramis's National Lampoon's Vacation. The true star of that movie is not the bumbling Chevy Chase, but the Wagon Queen family truckster, an enormous hearse-like vehicle that is gradually gutted over the course of the film due to a combination of vandalism and incompetent driving. But as the movie Vacation was celebrating the station wagon, its demise was looming. There were warning signs. The oil crisis of 1973 made fuel efficiency a priority for consumers. The ingenuity of Japanese engineering was making it harder and harder to stay loyal to American cars that handled poorly and seemed in constant need of repair. Then came what car journalist Amos Kwan has called the testosterone-robbing minivan, which Lee Iacocca introduced at Chrysler in 1983. With better fuel economy, more headroom, and best of all, a sliding side door, the minivan was a hit among practical-minded carpooling soccer moms. 
mandatory car seats rang the death knell of the way back. The station wagon belonged to the golden age of the highway, the new system of interstates built by Eisenhower and Kennedy. Up through the 80s, that highway system represented nothing less than freedom itself, flight from dreary routines of city and suburb, access to all our nation's great beauty and natural attractions. But then, with traffic and suburban sprawl getting worse and worse, those endless highways were no longer our means of escape. They became another part of what we needed to escape from. And so after the minivan, we fell in love with the four-wheel drive SUV, the kind that, at least in the commercials, could drive right over a guardrail, plow through a rocky riverbed, and scale a craggy mountain at 45 degrees. Maybe it was the renewed nuclear fears of the 80s, or just a vague sense of looming catastrophe, but suddenly we all needed military-grade vehicles of our own, something that could get traction on a glacier and stand up to machine gun fire if needed. When the next blizzard, hurricane, or wildfire hit, local and state authorities weren't going to save us. In 2011, Volvo announced that it would stop selling station wagons in the United States. Sales had dropped from 40,000 in 1999 to 480 in 2010. Auto buffs immediately began to mourn its passing. But the truth is that by 2011, the station wagon was already long dead. The Volvo wagon of the 90s was no more a real station wagon than a barn swallow is a real dinosaur. At best, it was a stunted descendant of the magnificent monsters that roamed American highways during the late Cretaceous period of American automotive history. Don't get me wrong, I'm a fan of auto safety, but boy, if someone gave me the keys to a 1979 Ford Country Squire, I'd be sorely tempted to take a week off and ride that beast to the Grand Canyon. And other things from the 1970s that could have killed us. McDonald's Collectible Drinking Glasses Ronald McDonald has been the mascot of McDonald's ever since 1963, when he was first played in TV ads by future Today weatherman Willard Scott. In 1970, a lonely Ronald was joined by the Hamburglar, Officer Big Mac, and the milkshake-loving Grimace in McDonaldland, a spectacularly imaginative concoction of ad agency Needham, Harper, and Steers, which seemed awfully similar to the then-popular kids' TV show H.R. Puffinstuff. Google the images of Mayor McCheese and H.R. Puffinstuff himself, and you'll see what I mean. The courts agreed and ordered McDonald's to pay $1 million to the show's producers, small fries given that the ad campaign had been so successful. The McDonald Land characters became inescapable as a line of plastic action figures, a complete set of which goes for about $600 on eBay, and as collectible drinking glasses, each one brightly painted with a different character. It's a safe bet that a good half of the liquid I consumed growing up was via those glasses. But it turns out the glasses themselves weren't so safe. In July 1977, the paint used on the exterior was discovered to contain lead content up to 18 times the legal limit. Although the company that manufactured the glasses, Owens, Illinois of Toledo, Ohio, declared that the glasses in no way present a health hazard, regulatory agencies weren't loving it. By that point, McDonald's had given away as many as 60 million of these IQ killers in various promotions over five years. 
Under pressure from the Food and Drug Administration, they agreed to cease distribution. Unfortunately, my family missed the memo, and the glasses remained in our cupboard up until about three years ago, by which point the images had faded to not much more than outlines. My mother's response, but the painting was on the outside. P.S. Let's all raise a non-lead-painted glass to Willard Scott in the hopes that he lives to announce his own 100th birthday. Quaaludes In the pilot episode of The Brady Bunch, just before they're married, Mike confesses to Carol that he has a case of nerves. Why don't you take a tranquilizer, asks Carol. I took one, says Mike. Well, maybe you should take another one, says Carol. Nothing doing, says America's dad. I want to be calm for the ceremony, but there's the honeymoon to consider. Look, I have no idea how much of the Brady honeymoon was fueled by synthetic drugs, but the fact that the quintessential family show of the era was promoting double doses of tranquilizers makes you realize how mainstream these things were. Quaaludes, the brand name for methoqualone, began as an insomnia and anxiety treatment and soon became a recreational drug, easy to get from a doctor who didn't ask too many questions. It fast became a popular club drug, sometimes called a disco biscuit. Highly addictive, even lethal when taken in large doses or mixed with alcohol, quaaludes were finally banned in the United States in 1984. ALAR An apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? Not if it's sprayed with deminazide, the plant growth regulator manufactured from the 60s through the 80s by the Uniroyal Chemical Corporation and sold under the brand name ALAR. ALAR was sprayed on apples and other fruits in order to keep them on the tree longer, aiding the ripening process, and most important, cutting down on labor costs for big fruit producers. But evidence that ALAR causes cancer emerged during the 1970s, and by 1984, the proof was overwhelming. A federal ban finally passed Congress in 1996. ALAR is still found all over crossword puzzles. Shag carpeting. Okay, I can't prove that shag carpeting, huge in the free love era of the 1960s and 70s, ever killed someone. But according to a 2001 piece in the British newspaper The Telegraph, carpets function as toxic sponges, soaking in all kinds of pollutants that we track in from the outside. Now imagine the billions of hippie microorganisms teeming inside those deep plush piles of looped yarn that make up a shag carpet. Trillions if the shag carpeting was inside a van. I'm not a licensed pediatrician, but I bet that encouraging a baby to roll around a shag carpet from the 1970s would build up all sorts of immunity. Jarts Jarts also called lawn darts or javelin darts, were weighted metal darts about a foot long that people used to toss around the backyard, trying to get them to land inside a plastic ring. If you threw them high enough, they could really gather speed as they plummeted to earth. Kids loved jarts until the government, citing several injuries and at least one death, tried to ban them in 1976. After pushback from several dangerous toy lobbying groups, the Consumer Product Safety Commission agreed to a compromise. Jarts would be allowed only in sporting goods stores. Then, in 1987, seven-year-old Michelle Snow was tragically killed by a misthrown jart. Her father, David, campaigned tirelessly for an outright ban, and eventually the CPSC voted two to one to prohibit their sale. Gotta wonder about that one no vote.
electric blankets. On a cold winter night during the Carter administration, there was nothing like curling up under a soft, cozy blanket laced with thick electrical wiring. Before safety features like an automatic shutoff became mandatory in 2001, exposed or damaged wiring made electric blankets a serious fire hazard. We got rid of the two we owned when my father started worrying we could be electrocuted. Even today, the American Pregnancy Association warns that the heat from an electric blanket can decrease a male user's fertility. Fun fact, in the vintage sci-fi invasion film The Thing from Another World, the monster is freed from the block of ice in which he is encased when an electric blanket is casually tossed aside, melting the creature's prison and loosing him upon the world. Yuffie Yuffie, spelled U-F-F-I, was a kind of expanding foam insulation sprayed into walls and crawl spaces. As a kid, I thought it looked kind of pretty, like ready whip topping. The problem was that one of the Fs in Yuffie stands for formaldehyde, which, when sprayed into the air, poses a cancer risk. When Yuffie's use became a cause of concern, manufacturers protested that symptoms of exposure were limited to watery eyes, nasal irritation, wheezing, coughing, fatigue, red or blotchy skin, severe allergic reactions, burning sensations in the eyes and throat, nausea, difficulty breathing, headache, malaise, insomnia, anorexia, loss of libido. I'm running out of room here.